0: Hello and welcome to Talking Opinions, I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. In the interest of full disclosure, and to at least limit friendly fire, (laughs) please beware that I voted for Joe Biden. In fact, when he picked Kamala Harris as his running mate, I duly gloated in I picked Biden-Harris 2020 in January 2019. Now it's official on August 12, 2020. In other words, I not only picked Biden to win the presidency when nobody was giving him a snowball's chance in hell, but even picked Harris to make history as vice president over 18 months before he did. My bona fides thusly established, many hailed Biden's foreign policy team with relief and reassurance in equal measure. This because they were certain it would not only reverse Trump's misguided foreign policies, but also revivify America's vaunted reputation on the world stage. Top on the agenda was, to use an admittedly fraught term, Resetting America's relationship with foes like North Korea and Russia, while rekindling its relationship with friends like the EU and Canada. To be sure, Biden got off to a good start, never mind that it only amounted to signing a flurry of executive orders. But he appeared to be vindicating great expectations most notably with orders to Rejoin the World Health Organization Rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement Reverse the so-called Muslim Ban Preserve Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a.k.a. DACA Halt construction and funding for Trump's border wall and reunite children separated from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border. As it happened, though, that flurry of Biden signings was detracting from Trumpian dealings that had him making secret overtures to North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. And now bear in mind that everyone thought even a fool like Trump should have known better than to touch that little gnome with a ten-foot pole. That's why Everyone was so shocked and dismayed when Trump made such a public show of bromancing him. Evidently, US presidents will never learn. In fact, Trump debased the presidency by boasting about his love letters with Lil' Kim. They were all he thought he needed to fly across the globe to consummate a nuclear deal. But Kim turned out to be a little shrew, too uptight to screw. This left Trump to fly back to America after their frigid summit in Vietnam to take an even colder shower, while Kim stayed behind, chained smoking cigarettes, and going on sightseeing tours. Frankly, ever since Lil' Kim's daddy was jerking US presidents around, I've been arguing that the only way to deal with North Korea is to call its bluff. Let it test fire missiles until kingdom come, but warn that if any of them land on friendly territory, it will be lights out for that hermit kingdom. This is the only message the United States should be sending A belligerent North Korea. In other words, Biden should have been ignoring Kim. At the same time, he should have been making a big show of bolstering South Korea's defences and wargaming all contingencies. All else is tail wagging the dog folly. But Biden and his A-team blundered. They waited until Kim made a big show himself of not just snubbing, but ridiculing their diplomatic outreach. Only then did it dawn on them to begin doing what they should have been doing in the first place, because his team finally announced last week that While the U.S. remains committed to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, Biden will not waste any more time reaching out to Kim. Ha! That instead, he is going to wait until Kim shows clear intent to take practical and verifiable steps towards that goal. Your move, Kim if you dare. Then there's Russia. No doubt you've heard Biden talking tough about making Russia pay. And, sure enough, he has toughened sanctions, not just for interfering in the U.S. presidential elections in 2016 and 2020, but also for putting bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, and placing spybots in practically all US government and corporate computer systems, complete with solar wind hackers, now just lying in wait for Putin's orders to strike. Significantly, though, Biden is upstaging his former boss, Barack Obama by vowing to help Ukraine fend off further Russian aggression with more than hot rhetoric and warm blankets. And he dispatched his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to the region last week to convey in person his daring intent to do so. Except the congenital bully that he is Putin began withdrawing the troops he spent weeks deploying on the border as soon as Biden began talking tough about helping Ukraine stand up to Russia. But long term, I hope at long last, this means doing what I began urging the US to do the minute Putin began deploying those forces, which is, for the US and its NATO allies, to funnel enough tanks, anti-tank missiles, and every other type of military hardware to enable Ukraine to man this border with all the troops and armaments necessary to call Russia's bluff. My exasperation at their failure to do so has been such that I am on record repeatedly exclaiming What the hell are they waiting for? Crimea was Putin's Sudetenland, for Ukraine to be his Poland? The point is that I was heartened to see Biden showing so much spine in his dealings with Putin, because it stood in commendable contrast, not just with the suspiciously spineless Trump but even with the conspicuously cautious Obama. But then came his mutterings this week on the Colonial Pipeline cyber-attack which, given solar winds, everyone knew, was yet another Russian attack. Biden didn't embarrass himself and the country the way Trump did in Helsinki. But he came despairingly close, because there he was at the White House, talking tough about punishing these hackers, but then talking solicitously about meeting with Putin, which clearly makes about as much sense as talking tough about punishing drug traffickers, but then talking solicitously about meeting with their drug lord. As rogue nations go, North Korea has nothing on Russia. Biden should treat its leader, Vlad the Poisoner, accordingly. As it happens, though, this hack of the colonial pipeline vindicates what I summed up just last year in Rogue nations like North Korea don't need Trump incapacitated to attack us. On October 7, 2020. Sure enough, Trump is no longer president, yet here we are. In any event, Biden should not dignify Putin with a bilateral summit for the same obvious reasons he should not dignify other murdering rogues like Kim of North Korea and MBS of Saudi Arabia. Xi of China, however, is another story. Uh, but before continuing, I feel obliged to note the fearful symmetry the insurrection of January 6 has to Russia's ongoing wargaming targeting Ukraine and China's targeting Taiwan. Most experts seem to think the cyber-attacks Russia and China are continually launching to destabilize and discredit American democracy is just pursuant to the clash of ideologies by other means. But I suspect it is equally the case that both countries are trying to sow such discord that January 6th turns out to be A dress rehearsal for the Second Civil War, which the hero of the first one warned about. Because here, according to the State Historical Society of Iowa, is what former President Ulysses S. Grant said at the annual reunion of the Army of Tennessee in Des Moines, Iowa, on September twenty-nine. 1875, and I quote If we are to have another contest in the near future of our national existence, I predict the dividing line will not be Mason and Dixon's, but between patriotism and intelligence on the one side, and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. End quote. And <laughs> hat tip to Ken Burns. <laughs> it has clearly taken a bit longer, but that dire warning is proving every bit as prescient as the more famous one former President Dwight D. Eisenhower delivered from the White House on January 17. 1961 about the threat the military-industrial complex posed to American democracy. And so enter Joe Biden, Liz Cheney, and common-sense patriots on the one side, and Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and QAnon ignoramuses on the other. God help America. The point is that Russia and China are doing all they can to foment outbreak of this second civil war, because that would clearly have America so divided against and preoccupied with itself, it would hardly be in the position to object to, let alone fend off, full-scale invasions of Ukraine and Taiwan, respectively, simultaneously. (laughs) But I digress. Decades of myopic and misguided trade have seen US presidents behaving like evangelical preachers, you know, the ones who show up on Sunday mornings, to condemn sins they committed on Saturday nights. Only this explains Biden accusing China of genocide against the Uyghurs, but then boasting about the hours he spent discussing other issues of mutual interest with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Case in point is the move afoot to boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics to punish China for this genocide. Biden has imposed targeted sanctions, and influential Senator Mitt Romney has proposed further diplomatic boycotts. But these hardly seem sufficient to honour America's pledge that never again will it stand by while any state perpetrates genocide. Not to mention that, even more than Russia, China has just cause to believe that it can act with impunity. US companies like Google, Apple, and Microsoft have seen to that. And, since the obvious sometimes needs stating, the athletes suffer most from Olympic boycotts. This is why I maintain that the only way the US and other Western countries can regain the moral high ground in their dealings with China is to force the IOC to relocate the Olympics. Let the chips fall where they may. Because, let's face it, China is as dependent on manufacturing cheap stuff to sell in Western countries as Western countries are on buying cheap stuff that are manufactured in China. Not to put too fine a point on it, but this codependency makes the economic relationship between Western countries and China today even more existential than the military relationship they had with the soviet union throughout the cold war which is why just like that old one this relationship is based even more on the concept of mutual assured destruction m a d apropos of mad only that explains the unforced error Biden's A team made. With its attempt to keep in place, Trump's cap on refugees at 15,000. After all, Biden promised to raise it to 62,500. Even worse, for some stupefying reason, he waited for a break between rounds of golf to finally calm the firestorm. This attempt ignited. Because that setting alone made Biden look every bit as clueless about the perennial plight of refugees as Trump always did. Never mind the uncanny fact that this just happened to be Biden's very first golf outing of his presidency. This, unlike Trump, who seemed to spend more time on the golf course than in the Oval Office in any event after two weeks under friendly bludgeoning for this all too foreseeable error team biden finally announced last week that he will raise the cap not only from 15,000 to 62,500 this year but to 125,000 next year presumably to compensate for this year's blunder except that As Biden himself might say, here's the deal, folks. After four years of denouncing Trump for his heartless and xenophobic immigration policies, why announce that you're going to keep his plainly racist cap of 15,000 on legal refugees in place? This, especially when the whole world can see... Twice as many illegal immigrants crossing America's southern border every week. I mean, how boneheaded is that? Conspicuously absent from Biden's foreign policy agenda has been anything to do with the Middle East. And one can hardly blame him. After all, as I record this israelis and palestinians are waging yet another battle in their ever war which makes the one biden is trying to end in afghanistan look like a fender bender between quarrelsome neighbors in fact everything about this raging conflagration is eerily similar to others i bemoaned in commentaries like to israel one dead Jew is worth 100 living Palestinians, on July 17, 2008. Never-ending story, Territorial Holy War between Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza, on January 3, 2009, and Groundhog Day flare-up between Israelis and Palestinians on July 15 2014. The only question is, what price stalemate? Alas, this invariably means a casualty ratio between Israelis and Palestinians of 1 to anywhere between 100 and 500. Of course, the damage ratio is not even comparable. I mean, at this point, Israel is just turning more of the rubble far too many Palestinians call home into more rubble. Nonetheless, listening to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, it's clear he intends to frame this latest battle as Israel's finest hour. Come what may, no doubt he thinks doing so will save not just his career, but his freedom too. After all, this battle has the twin collateral benefits of a. Preventing opposition leader Yair Lapid from forming a new government to finally oust Netanyahu after 12 years in power because jingoism will oblige all opposition leaders, including Lapid, to rally around Netanyahu. And B, preventing prosecutors from continuing their corruption trial against him, which seems bound to end with him behind bars. Ironically, this prompted me to quip in Kutzpah, Netanyahu playing Arab card to win Israel's Jewish election on March 19, 2021, and I quote. Here's to ousting Netanyahu from office so that, like Trump, he too can spend more time in court, fighting losing battles to escape his long-awaited fate, in prison. Birds of a feather... May they flock together in this respect for the rest of their lives. But nothing betrayed Biden's contempt for Netanyahu quite like the way he made a public show of calling over a dozen world leaders before condescending to ring Bibi after beginning his term as president. Arguably, this was because Netanyahu spent much of his premiership demonizing Palestinians in ways that make the way Trump demonized Mexicans seem benign. But no doubt it's also because the brazen ways Netanyahu interfered to help Trump in the 2016 and 2020 US presidential elections make the ways Putin interfered seem mild. Whatever the case, Netanyahu would clearly like nothing more now than to make this a true forever war. But the reality remains that it's either the two-state solution he notoriously despises, or this whack-a-mole war. Unfortunately, again like Trump, Netanyahu has shown time and again that he has no scruples about presiding over these conflagrations, like an arsonist marshalling efforts to fight the fire that he himself ignited. Meanwhile, you'd be hard-pressed to see any U.S. engagement, beyond tippy-toe efforts, to renegotiate the nuclear deal with Iran, and lip service pursuant to America's role as regional peace broker of peace that never breaks out. Otherwise, Biden seems intent on leaving regional actors to their own devices, and rightly so. Apropos of which, No foreign country has become more inhospitable than Afghanistan. No doubt this is why Biden made such a big show of announcing his plan to end America's forever war there on its 20th anniversary this 9-11. But I was stupefied by the way so many commentators hailed his announcement. Maureen Dowd the celebrated columnist for the New York Times led the chorus with a piece titled Biden ditches the generals finally on April 17, 2021. But my blog is replete with commentaries decrying the folly of this war that date back to 2005. More to the point The titles to most of them make doubts look belated at best, as this partial list of five clearly shows. 1. Please spare us the Al-Qaeda obits on December 5, 2005. 2. Meanwhile, over in Afghanistan, snatching defeat, from the hands of victory, on September 18, 2006. 3. Without, or even with, more forces, failure in Afghanistan is likely, on September 23, 2009. 4. Obama saluting war dead will be the defining image of his Presidency, on October 30, 2009, and 5. Afghanistan, how many more U.S. soldiers must die for a mistake, on September 19, 2012. This is why I found nothing in Biden's announcement to hail. Not to mention that it took at least 15 years and four U.S. presidents for him to finally heed the lessons of Westmoreland's Vietnam and ditch the generals. By contrast, it took JFK only 13 days to ditch the generals in 1962 to properly handle and end the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this was long before generals caused successive US presidents to send American soldiers to graveyards of empires in Vietnam and Afghanistan. Of course, Americans have an infamous record of wasting blood and treasure, trying to build Jeffersonian democracies in foreign countries when we still don't even have one here, in America. But I will save more on the manifest folly of that for another episode. For now, fears abound that, once Taliban mullahs reclaim power, which they seem bound to do, they will provide safe haven for terrorists. The proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, obtains. So yes, it's far more likely that the Taliban will provide safe haven for terrorists today than, say, 15 years ago, when some of us were already urging America to cut its losses and withdraw from Afghanistan. Besides, America blithely abides drug cartels operating out of several narco states just south of its border. Therefore, it can certainly abide terrorist groups operating out of Afghanistan. In any case, America has far more to fear these days from terrorist groups operating out of several countries in Africa. Far more intriguing. Is the prospect of history repeating itself in a different respect? Because the Afghans can be forgiven for expecting the Chinese now to try to transform Afghanistan in their image. After all, the US backed the Mujahideen to force the Russians to retreat with their tails between their legs. The Russians, in turn, backed the Taliban to force the Americans to retreat now in similar fashion. So, if the Chinese fail to heed Santayana's famous admonition, one wonders which local faction the U.S. and or Russia will back to force them to retreat too. Anyway... I'll end now with another bit of speculative symmetry. This week, when I saw lines forming a mile long for gasoline, and read about inflation threatening to render stimulus checks worthless, I thought, all we need now is for Islamists to seize an American embassy somewhere and capture hostages because Trump would immediately show up on Fox News to lead a chorus of Republicans in declaring Biden's presidency already a failure, just like Jimmy Carter's. And does anyone doubt that despite Biden's commendable efforts to have his Build Back Better agenda, emulate LBJ's great society? If not FDR's New Deal, this fateful symmetry would resonate. Oi, vey, I need a vacation. Uh, That's it, and if you liked it, please subscribe. It's free. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.